say thank you to the skeleton crew who made it out. And, um, you know, it's about, it was about 9 o'clock this morning. I got my driveway blown off, and I went down to the Maverick to get my traditional Sunday morning breakfast burrito. And by the time I got back, my driveway needed to be blown again. And I said, okay, we had better, and, and the roads hadn't been plowed, and I was told they weren't plowed down in town. And so I knew we'd have to call an audible on this morning's service. And so most of our folks, thank you for joining us at home. And for those of you who made it here, uh, thank you as well uh, for making it out. Let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2, we're going to continue our study this morning through the book of Exodus. And we're going to study the second half of the second chapter. And hopefully my goal is to get through the rest of chapter 2 and prepare us uh, following Easter to meet God at the burning bush as Moses encounters him there. So Exodus chapter 2, verses 11, and we're going to read down through verse 25, and I'd encourage you to follow along here or at home um, with your Bibles open. By the way, if you're visiting with us today, my name is Greg. I serve here as the lead pastor, and it's my privilege to teach the word to you. Uh, we are going to have a, a, a little different crew teaching over the next few weeks. Uh, pastor Chris is going to be teaching through uh, one of our prayer passages next week. Uh, the week after that is Easter. The following week after that, we have a missionary who will be here. Uh, his name is John Lehman, and uh, he's uh, an associate pastor in uh, the Greenville, South Carolina area, who's going to be retiring from that ministry and going uh, into the mission field. And so um, we're going to be hosting him here, and we're excited to, to have him the week after Easter. And then we'll jump back on our regular schedule after that. So this will be the last time for a bit here that we are in Exodus. Exodus chapter 2, let's pick up our reading in verse 11. One day when God had, uh, I'm sorry, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and Drove them away. They were probably waiting up in the hills. They saw that the girls did all the hard work of putting the water in the troughs. And as soon as they got done with the hard part, they came and chased them off to take advantage of the work themselves. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you've come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds. 
and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, well, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may come and eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter uh, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. He called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Father, would you give us grace to understand this passage? Would you help us to come to understand what Moses did? And that is that you're a gracious and compassionate God. You delight to use people who've really messed things up in their past. And you delight to answer prayer, especially when it reminds you of the promises that you've made to us. May we be especially attentive this morning to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, children, I knew you'd be in here, and many of you would be watching from home. And so I always like to talk a little bit specifically to you right at the very beginning. Now, how many of you older siblings understand something about your younger siblings, especially if they're babies? And that is, if you have a toy or a knick-knack or something that's really nice that you love very much, it's very pretty or special, do you put that thing on the floor where your little baby brother or baby sister can get to it? Oh, Timmy's giving me a knowing nod, a knowing shake of the head. You don't do that, do you, Ella? What will happen if you leave it down there for Jude? What will happen if you leave it down there for baby Lydia? They'll break it. That's right. They'll break it. You see, I didn't know this about children. My, I used to wear glasses before COVID, and I got contact lenses, my first three pair of glasses after children got broken by children until I find, and my wife would have no sympathy on me. I'd say, they broke my glasses, and my wife would say, well, you, you put them down where they could get them. You have to keep them up high. I didn't grow up with babies in the house. I didn't know this. Well, this is something you understand. This is something we understand. We, when we have something really special, when we have something that's really, really important to us, what do we do? We protect it. We put it away in a special place so that it can't be disturbed. Now, I want you to know how very unlike God that is. When God sees somebody really special that he wants to use, when God has a person that he wants to develop into something, somebody really important, if it were up to us, we would, we would shelter that person and make that person just about as perfect as could be. We would keep that person from ever making mistakes. 
we would protect that person from the trials of life. But our thoughts aren't like God's thoughts. When God has somebody that he wants to use, his pattern is to let that person get hit and to let that person make some mistakes. In fact, some of the people that God uses most made the biggest mistakes you can imagine. They made terrible, life-changing mistakes. They committed terrible, awful sins. And God allows that so that his grace can pick them up and hold them up so that when he does begin to use them for special purposes, they'll never forget where they were or who they were. And God delights to use those people. I'd like to see this in the life of Moses. We've got three points we're going to be covering today. If you'd like to write them down ahead of time, that will help you keep up. They all begin with R's, the rejected revolutionary, the resident alien, and the remembering God. But let's get some context before we do that. Our three points are this, the rejected revolutionary, the resident alien, and the remembering God. But let's get a little context especially if you're just joining us and you're jumping onto a treadmill that's already running. Israel has been in Egypt. They've been there for probably about 350, 360 years now. Long time. Pharaoh is unhappy with the size of their nation. He wants to keep the male workforce, but he doesn't want them to grow, and so he develops a program where the male children are wiped out. He threatens them. He enslaves them. He tries everything he can to stifle their growth, yet they keep on growing. They keep on expanding. They keep on multiplying and filling the land. And nothing he can do slows it down. In fact, all of his efforts only speed things up. And Pharaoh, turns out, is a rather weak man. Not that he himself was weak, but compared to the strength and power and purposes of God, he stands no chance. And when Pharaoh puts these laws into place, nobody seems to obey him. This is a pattern that we see in Scripture. We go to the book of Esther, for example, and you've got Artaxerxes on the throne, and he's this pawn. Everybody's influencing him. Life happens to him. He never actually, in the book of Esther, makes his own decision ever. He's always being manipulated by people. And so Pharaoh is, in a sense, powerless. And he tells all the Egyptians to throw the Hebrew children into the Nile. And his own daughter disobeys him. She finds a Hebrew baby floating on the Nile. All she had to do was take that baby out of the basket or out of the box that we talked about last week and drown that baby. But she doesn't. She actually formally adopts that child. She even names the child Moses, Moshe. She drew the child up out of the water. She Moshed the child. So she names him drawn up. And as such, as a daughter of Pharaoh, Moses receives the greatest privileges of his day. 
the writer of the book of Hebrews is going to tell us that Moses had at his disposal the riches of Egypt. He had a great education. Moses' writing, as we'll see moving forward, is profound. He's a highly educated man, a, a gifted man. He's an energetic man, and he's likely trained as a warrior even. The shepherds that he encounters later didn't stand a chance against him. He is of an enviable class, yet Moses never forgets where he came from. All along, it's very possible, in fact, probably likely, that Moses had access to his mother, Jochebed, and his father, if memory serves, his name was Amram. Moses is learning who he is, and it's probable even that Moses, along the way, begins to understand something about himself and his role in this nation. He begins to see himself as a deliverer of his people. He understands that his life has been preserved and that he's in a unique position to help, and he wants to do something for his people. And so that brings us to our first point. Moses, the rejected revolutionary. Moses, the rejected revolutionary. If we go to verse 11, we see the writer set the scene. He says, one day when Moses had grown up, in Acts chapter 7, 23, Stephen is preaching, and he says that Moses was about 40 at the time. Now, we have to ask ourselves, how is it that we can go from cradle to 40 in the blink of an eye? Well, that's not uncommon. In fact, we American English biography biographers, we're the weird ones on the scope of history. When we think of a biography, we think of people, uh, we think of, a person's childhood, a person's adolescence, and how these events are so uh, meaningful and impactful. According to the ancient perspective, a person's life didn't really begin until they started to do the first significant thing. And these massive leaders that have huge biographies in the Bible just sort of appear. Jesus, for example, we have his birth narrative. We have one tiny little scene from when he was 12 years old, and then we don't meet him again until he's 30. Other leaders, like Daniel, just appear on the scene. You've got uh, David. We don't meet him until right before he challenges Goliath. We've got John the Baptist. We're told about his conception, and then not again until he's off in the wilderness preaching. All of these people we get very little information on until they're serving the Lord in full capacity. And such is the case here. We hear about this remarkable story of Moses' deliverance and then nothing again until he's ready to serve. We get one little glimpse of his life and we're not going to meet him again for 40 more years after this. 40 years. One event, 40 years. Well, Moses, as I said, is beginning to get aware of what his role and what his future role might be. And he goes out one day. Now, don't, please don't think this means that Moses just stepped outside of his palace and saw something. Moses was probably raised a great distance from where the majority of his people were. 
Moses went out and took a deliberate trip across the country, most likely so, to the place where his people were. This was a a deliberate step of his to go inspect and investigate and see what was going on with his people. And he goes out and he looks. He journeyed somewhere and he looked and what he saw was so disturbing to him. There was an Egyptian slave master. The word that's used in Egyptian uh, uh, and, and the, the term that's used for the beating that he was putting on this poor Hebrew <coughs> makes it clear that this man was a ruler of the Egyptians. He was a taskmaster. He was a manager. And he's flogging. He's flogging a Hebrew. And apparently for no reason. Friends, please don't think this was a, a kind beating if there is such a thing. What Moses saw disturbed him. It was violent. It was awful to behold. And so Moses determines in his heart to act. Now, what Moses does is unconscionable. Again, the narrative is compressed. It's probably not this case, that Moses saw the beating taking place and rushed in and knocked the man over when he wasn't looking, and the Hebrew who was being beaten witnessed the whole thing. That's not what happened. What probably happened was Moses took note of who that man was. And then over time, Moses observed and waited for an opportune moment This was premeditated. And Moses jumped the man and killed the man in revenge for what he had seen earlier. He looked this way and that, made sure nobody was watching, and slays the man in cold blood and buries him in the sand. Now, some commentators will defend Moses on this point. They will note two things. That the actions that Moses took, Moses saw, Moses struck, Moses looked, these are all descriptions that God uses of his own people in the book of Exodus. And God did strike the firstborn of Egypt. They will even point out that there was an Egyptian law That if you saw a person being beaten, being attacked essentially, that as a citizen you could take action yourself and in a sense act in self-defense for the person being beaten. But Moses makes none of those excuses for himself. Moses does not let himself off the hook. In fact, what we see here is that Moses is displaying a guilty conscience. He looked this way and that. If this were truly a legal, justified killing, why would Moses bury the body in the sand? He knew what he was doing was wrong. It was a rush of blood. Vengeance. And what's worse, this is 
naivete to the core. For the next day, Moses goes out again. And he is so sure that his people are going to welcome him as a revolutionary. His people are going to welcome the fact that he is trying to throw off their bondage. He's in a sense expecting the the Israelite people to pave his path with rose petals, as it were. Welcome the deliverer, come to them. And he is in for a rude awakening. For he sees two Hebrew people fighting. His naivete is absolutely staggering. There's an Egyptian manager who's dead, and there's an investigation that's ongoing. People are going to get to the bottom of this. They haven't found the body yet, but he's missing. And people are looking. And what's worse, Moses didn't do it as privately as he thought. There were witnesses. He didn't see them, but they were there. And they've already told on him. Word has already spread. And Moses goes out and sees these two Hebrews fighting. He doesn't know it yet, but he's already in trouble. He talks to these two Hebrews who were fighting. One was in the wrong, one was in the right, and Moses tries to reason with the one who's in the wrong. And the one who's in the wrong says, Who made you prince and judge over us? Children, this is just like you. If, if your older sibling starts to boss you around, you would say, Who died and made you general? In other words, I don't want to hear it from you. Actually, if you don't already say that in your home, don't say that, okay? And if you do, don't blame me for teaching you how to say that, okay? Nobody puts you in charge. This must have shocked Moses. He thought his people would be appreciative for his efforts to deliver them. And yet, they hate him. They don't want him. They, they say, you don't understand us. You didn't get beat like we did. And now you, Johnny, come lately. You think you're going to come and deliver us? You don't know who we are. You're not like us. You were raised in the palace. We don't want to hear it from you. This must have crushed Moses. Yet something else bothered him about this interaction, and it should have. He, was, he realizes that he wasn't as sneaky as he thought. The investigation is ongoing. The witnesses are coming forward. Moses is going to be a wanted man very soon. And sure enough, the Israelites, they're not asking for deliverance. They don't want Moses doing this. Now, you might be saying, oh, come now, Pastor Greg. Aren't you reading into that a little bit too much? Is this really what the story is trying to communicate? I would invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, verses 27 through 29. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is Stephen's interpretation of the events. God sent you a deliverer in the form of Moses. He even struck down an Egyptian to show that he was serious about it. And you were stubborn then as you are now. That's Stephen's point. They didn't want to hear it. Stephen says, you're rejecting the deliverer. 
just as you rejected Moses when he tried to deliver you the first time. I'll leave it to you to go turn there and find that, but that's the way to, we're, we're to take it. Well, that brings us to our second point, Moses, the resident alien. Pharaoh hears something. Now, every commentator agrees that when Pharaoh hears this story of Moses, the child he never wanted, of Moses, the grandchild he never wanted, more technically, a Hebrew boy raised in his own palace, fed by his own table, educated by his own teachers. This man is fancying himself as a revolutionary. And he's even killing Egyptian people. Now, it turns out Pharaoh gave the Israelites too much credit. What would happen if the Israelites suddenly started to follow this man? Well, then Pharaoh would have a huge problem on his hands. And so Pharaoh's like, let's snuff this out before it happens. And Pharaoh plans to execute Moses. He can't have a revolutionary kicking it around. Moses knows that it's time to leave. And in fact, it says that Moses flees to this place called Midian. And the word flee actually has the idea of disappearing. It says, like, uh, for example, in the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, life is fleeting. It's here today, gone tomorrow. It's like a vapor. It up and disappears. Moses had to think fast. Moses had to absconce and just disappear into thin air. And so he did. He's gone. We might disagree with his methods of keeping a low profile, but we'll get to that in a minute. Again, Moses is a naive man, and God is driving that out of him, frankly. It's a lesson he learns a little too well, as we'll see in chapters 3 and following. So Moses goes to Midian. The exact location of Midian is a little bit unknown. I, I, I should have. I was thinking this morning I should have done this. Because it's not totally, um, if, you don't, if you don't have a picture in your mind of what the Red Sea looks like, this won't make much sense. But you know how at the top of the Red Sea there's those two little horns? They're called the Straits of Tiran. Well, Midian, there's, there's one of those little straits close to Egypt, and then there's one of those little straits farther from Egypt. And Midian is on the eastern side of the eastern fork. In other words, Moses got as far away from Egypt as he knew he could get. There were some other advantages to being in Midian. It was a good place to hide from the government if you wanted to. You were protected on three sides. If troops were coming around the corner to get you, you would see them a long way off. And you could skedaddle before they caught up with you. The Midianites were probably nomadic people. They kind of made base camp in that region of the world, but they would commonly move. We meet Moses again, and he's far away from this place, probably tending his flocks and herds where the pasture was much better. Well, at any rate, Moses had an idea in mind. In Midian... He had some family. It was a distant family, but they were probably people who had an ancestor with him. And also, they were probably people who spoke a similar language. 
And so he, when he was thinking about the places to run to, he thought, oh, this place is sheltered. There's some relatives there. And they even speak the same language. And so he went off over there, and he sits down at a well. Now, for those of you familiar with the book of Genesis, that should immediately evoke images for you. You remember Jacob on the run from Esau sits down at a well? Abraham's servant is supposed to go on this impossible journey in a faraway place, and he sits down next to a well. Wells were popular greeting places, but There's more than just a convenience going on here. Moses is trying to show that God is up to something different and new in his life. So Moses sits down at this well, and seven young ladies come out. Nice young ladies, it seems. They're going to water the flocks. And just as Moses was a bit naive, these ladies were... Young ladies were also probably a bit naive. And they brought the flocks out. And as I said uh, in the scripture reading, the shepherds who were notoriously bad guys in that uh, place in the world in that time saw these girls struggling with the water troughs, getting everything set up, and they waited until the exact moment that the hard work was done. And they came raiding out of their hiding places, chased the girls off, and tried to take advantage of the hard work that they'd done. Well, Moses, trying to keep a low profile, mind you, picks a fight. (laughs) Moses is still dressed up like an Egyptian, and we see in his character something that rises up against injustice. He hates when people are bullied. And he doesn't want to see it anymore. These girls have gotten chased off, and so he runs and he overwhelms these shepherds. He chases them off. The girls are very grateful, and they say thank you, and they go home. And their father, Reuel, he says, in another place in the Bible, his name is Jethro, he says, ladies, girls, how, how come you came home so early? And they said, oh, the, the shepherds, they, were, they tried to chase us off like usual, but there was an Egyptian man there, and he chased him off for us, and we got home early. Now, young ladies, I have two daughters, and I can just imagine Reuel's reaction at this moment. His jaw was probably on the ground. He's got seven daughters that he has to somehow get married off. And here's this eligible bachelor that seems to be a pretty straight up uh, an upstanding guy, protects his daughters, and the girls just gave him a thank you and ditched him. He's like, girls, how am I ever going to get you married? What would you do with this guy? I'm like, well, we left him back there. Go back and get him. And so they ran off and got him and brought him back. And turns out Jethro and Moses hit it off. They become good friends, actually. And Later on in the story, Jethro plays an important role. And it's clear that these two men have deep respect for one another. And so, by and by, Moses shows himself useful 
shows himself respectful and kind. And somehow or another, an arrangement is made, and Moses stays with Jethro. And eventually, he takes Zipporah as his wife, one of Jethro's daughters. Jethro is, we're told, the priest of Midian. Now, there's a lot of speculation. If you were to pick up a certain type of commentary, it would tell you that Jethro is the one who taught Moses all that he knows about religion. That's probably a bit of a stretch. Uh, Jethro did descend, or Reuel did descend, from Abraham through Abraham's second wife, Keturah. After Sarah died, Abraham remarried and sent many of his sons off, and one of them was Midian, and Jethro was a descendant of that man. So it's almost certain that Jethro had an understanding of who God was, but he probably did not worship God alone. He probably also worshipped several other gods. And by and by, this man comes to know the Lord, as the only God. It would take a while, but Jethro would come to that conclusion. Now, Zipporah is a figure we'll meet again. She seems to be an incredibly supportive wife. Her name means songbird. That can be taken a little, um, it can be taken a little negatively, as in she's like a Twitterer, moving about, always flitting about. It can be taken very pleasantly, which is how I would choose to take it. Maybe she was a young lady who was always singing, always moving around, a pleasant ray of sunshine in one's life. Typically, people adopted names after their character became known. Sometimes it was given them at birth, as was the case with their son. They had two sons, but their firstborn son's name was Gershom, which means resident alien. And so Moses settles in to prison, as it were. He doesn't have iron bars around him. He's free to move about. But the life that he thought he had is now gone. He thought he'd be a deliverer. He thought he'd be somebody important in the nation of Egypt he thought he'd be the most important person in the nation of Israel. But he's a murderer, a convicted murderer. And he's gone out into the hills to live a lonely life. It's domestic tranquility for sure. But his best friends are going to be sheep. And for 40 long years he will live in that prison of anonymity and regret he has a lot of lessons to learn out there in the wilderness tending for sheep and he's going to learn them mostly well he needed some seasoning while God did something else in a faraway place. And that brings us to our last point, the remembering God. In verses 23 through 25, something we haven't seen yet happens. 
God's people finally pray. So you know, as this passage has moved forward, God's people, God has been surprisingly absent from this text. Now, a new Pharaoh is on the scene. The old Pharaoh died to nobody's great regret. We don't have his name recorded. We don't know who he was. He passed off into history just like he hoped those babies in the Nile would disappear. That's how he left. God's judgment on him is sure. But a new Pharaoh rose. And this Pharaoh probably furthered the old Pharaoh's plan for destruction of the people of Israel or for keeping them enslaved and in such a harsh, in harsh conditions. But God's people to this point finally pray. It says that they groaned, they cried out, they cried for help finally. This word cried for help is a special Hebrew word. In our English translation, it's three words, but in Hebrew, it's just one. And it always means the sort of cry for help. The, uh, it's a, a call, a distress signal, an SOS. Now, to this point, God has been almost absent from the text. The Hebrew midwives feared God, and God gave them families, but that's the only mention of God. God is not mentioned in the slavery. God is not mentioned in Moses' life. God is not mentioned in Moses' fleeing. And finally here, God's people start to pray. And when God's people pray, God acts. Now I have a question for you. When Moses was writing, did he have the ability to make a sentence smooth? For, ex for example, if I wanted to describe what I did this morning, Imagine how clunky this would be. Greg went outside and started the snowblower. Greg blew snow off the driveway. Greg drove down to the Maverick, and Greg ate a breakfast burrito. You would say, well, thank you, Pastor Greg, but I think you could have said that in about 90% fewer words. Listen to how Moses words this. He says, And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Do you think that was on purpose or on accident? What is Moses trying to tell us? that the instant God's people start to reach out to them, God, in sort of fourfold rising volume, begins to rise to protect his people. God himself is now going to take responsibility for this situation. God hears. He hears in such a way that it compels his action. God remembers his covenant. It's not like he, it just suddenly popped into his mind. God says, you know what? It's high time I make good on my promise to Abraham. And what was it that I promised Abraham? Oh, yes, that they would have this land and God begins to take action off of what he remembers. God sees. This is the same word for what Moses saw. And it says that God knows. 
This is not just any kind of knowing. This is the kind of knowing that you would have for the knowing of an intimate detail. I say all the time that I know people. But imagine saying that I know a project that I've been working on for a long time. For those of our men who were really active in helping build the parsonage, they know that place. They know what's under the floor. They know what's under the drywall. They drilled it in place. They nailed it in place. There's an intimate kind of knowing. I know the ins and outs of it, and that's what God is saying. God's people pray, and God takes action. Now let's close with three applications. Number one. Number one, and this is the most important one, and I want us to never forget it. Never forget this. God loves to use people with a past. God loves to use people with a past. Go back to Judah. You remember Judah? Kidnapped his brother, sold him into slavery. Attempted to murder Tamar. Was called on the carpet for his duplicity and treachery and fornication. He turns his life around and gives his heart to God and becomes the lion's whelp. David. David commits adultery and then murder. And then wrote most of our Psalter. There's, of course, Saul of Tarsus, the murderous, murderer, terrorist, the slayer of God's people. Imagine the Apostle Paul preaching a sermon in Jerusalem and having a daughter sit in front of him whose parents he murdered. Paul went through that. And God wanted to use him. And God wanted to use Moses even after his murder. If you have a past, turn your heart to the Lord and be encouraged because God loves to use people who have a past. And if you don't have a past, well, that makes you fairly unique because most of us have pasts. (laughs) Don't give up on people when they've messed up because God loves to use people who have a past. Number two, the first step of deliverance is the discovery that I need it. God's people weren't ready to be delivered when Moses wanted to deliver them the first time. And the second time, Moses didn't want to deliver them because he'd learned this lesson all too well. What if they don't receive me? They're not going to know who you are. They're not going to know who I am. I'm a distant memory to them. Yes, but now they want it. Now they realize they need it. Friends, sometimes our family members, our loved ones, they're not ready. They're not ready yet to hear the gospel. They're not ready to hear the remedies that Scripture offers. They don't know they need the help yet. 
Don't back off of the Bible's condemnation of their sin either. Alleviating their conscience undercuts that first key step in realizing that we are under the hand of a wrathful God. People need to realize that they need to be saved from something before they can reach out for a savior. And Moses didn't yet know that. And he had to learn that hard lesson a hard way. Number three. This is a quote from C.H. Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. He said this, When God's mercies are coming, their footfalls are our desires to pray. You might have a trial. You didn't even know you had that coming, and yet you find yourself on your knees. And it appears that those prayers are too late, or they're going up into the dark. And Spurgeon would have us think of it a different way. What you're actually getting in that desire to pray is the first sprinkles of what will be a deluge of God's mercy. And the first indication that God wants to mercy you is in effect a change of heart in you to pray. And this is what God, this is how God begins to change the course of your life. Well, I probably bit off a little bit more than I could chew with this lengthy of a passage, and so I apologize for going a little long today. I do hope that you've been blessed by the passage. Again, if you're joining us from home, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for all those who made it out. Let's go ahead and pray. And Nathan will come lead us in a final song, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for Moses and for this passage. Lord, help us to learn these lessons well. If there be any in here who's only now coming to discover the fact that they need a deliverance, May this be the first step in a long journey of your mercy being poured out on their lives. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.